I'm Jennifer Nielsen, and this is Let It Glow, Episode 24, While I Can, with Autumn McAlpin. Ready, set, glow. Welcome to the Let It Glow podcast, a happy place where you'll learn how to let your soul shine and discover new ways to design your best life. I'm your host, Jennifer Nielsen. Hello, ladies, and welcome to another episode of Let It Glow. I have a real treat in store for you today. I am going to be interviewing an extraordinarily talented and inspiring lady, Autumn McAlpin. This interview is a little unique because it's the first one I've done over the phone. So usually I have those that I'm interviewing here in the studio with me, so we're face-to-face, but we couldn't make those arrangements, so we decided to do it over the phone. So we're going to improvise a little bit today. But really, I was just really excited to have this opportunity. I've known Autumn for several years. She's a dear friend of a friend of mine, Kara, and as a result, we become friends. And I've kind of watched her journey and followed along as she's making things happen in her life. And I thought what she had to share in her story was worth telling. And so that's why she's here today. So Autumn, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, I'm Autumn McAllison, as Jen said, and I live in San Clemente, California. Thanks for having me in remotely. (laughs) And um, I'm a wife and mother of four children and um, also a filmmaker and a writer. That's a small way to sum it up. So I'll give you a little more information because <laughs> I knew that she wouldn't. So ultimately, kind of what inspired this whole um, getting together now, we've, I've, I've thought about it for a very long time, but the movie that she just directed and produced is actually premiering this week in Arizona. And so when I saw that, I was like, okay, I got to get some girls together. We got to go see this movie because it's a wonderful movie. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. So... Um, but she's been on this path of pursuing this for quite some time. But I would say kind of going back to even when she was in college, she was always creating and producing things. She wrote a book, Real Life 101 in college. And then she had a column in Orange County um, Register. Is that right, Autumn? Yes. Yeah. And I actually followed along with that because my friend Kara would send me these excerpts all the time. And she is just hilarious. She takes everyday life and just cracks it open wide and just you just you can't help but laugh when she shares a story. I mean, she's great with details. She's a great writer, which is why her movie is so amazing. And so there's there's so many directions I can go here. And I've really thought a lot about this because I think for me personally, having seen this whole process for many, many years, what's inspiring about Autumn is that there have been obstacles and Kind of the path that her life has taken isn't exactly what she had envisioned it to be, but in that it's helped her actually magnify her her dreams and her pursuits. And it could have done the opposite. And so with that, Autumn, maybe just start with your upbringing just briefly, because we want to get into the real meat, the good stuff here, but just kind of talk about that. I want to kind of get into some of those obstacles that I referenced here. So, Sure, sure. So I grew up um, right outside Memphis, Tennessee, Southern girl, and um, but a, a Western transplant, really. My parents are from the West Coast, so we would spend uh, a school year in Tennessee, and I was the second oldest of eight children. We had a pet pig, a little 
farm. We had um, a guitar shaped pool. I had kind of a unique a guitar shaped pool that was not in my a notes. Guitar- Oh my goodness. <laughs> we used to tell we used to tell people our house was Ellis's first home and people actually believed this. It was pretty funny, but it wasn't. Um, but we um we were kind of well known in our town because we had all these kids and my mom had this big conversion van and would always be driving us all around and just we kind of stuck out there and we grew up in the Bible belt and people are very um strongly religious and opinionated and we were a little different and so we I had a unique upbringing, but then in the summers I would spend my summers in California, which is where my um Mom's side of the family was from, and I just loved California. I would tell people I was from California, even though I wasn't <laughs> when I was a kid, because I loved it so much. And I always had California dreams my whole life. And I grew up as the second oldest of eight children. I spent a lot of time babysitting. And I, pretty young in my life, decided I wanted to not be um, someone who watched kids for the rest of my life. I wanted a career. <laughs> and my dad was the president of a large real estate company and was always traveling and kind of had a fun life. And I, I sometimes would go on trips with him and I, his was the path I wanted to follow more so than my mom's, I would say. And, um, so I had big dreams. I was going to get many graduate degrees and travel the world and do all of these things. And then I ended up taking, um, a different course. I actually, um, attended BYU and, um, there remit my husband. I had met him at a summer camp and remet him and we ended up getting married quite young and having a child quite young. And so um, I didn't have those grad degrees and hadn't traveled the world and, and didn't do all those things um, as I thought I would do before um, having a career in, or having a family. So I kind of did it in reverse order. And I'm not going to say I regret any of those decisions. I'm very grateful that my path took me where it did because I wouldn't have my kids because, um, as it turns out, I um, later in my 20s, um, when I was steep in motherhood, I um, ended up getting diagnosed with a disease. And for many years, we didn't know exactly what it was, but it is a progressive disease where it um, has the ability to debilitate or um, cripple. And my doctors advise any stress on the body is um, not good. And so after I had two kids, they told me I needed to stop. But um, each of my kids showed up to me in, in what I like to say is spirit form and told me they were ready to come. And so I, I have four children and they all very clearly made appearances in my life before they were even born saying, you got to have me now. And so I have my children young in my twenties. And then now as I'm a little older than that, <laughs> I'm dipping back into the career world and achieving some of the dreams that, um, I had had when I was young. And uh, we do live in California, which has made it a little easier with the film, um, angle of things, but yeah, so that's kind of in a nutshell, um, some of the things I've gone through. Wow. Okay. So that kind of answers some of my questions. Because one of my questions was, as a little girl, what did you dream to do when you grew up? And it sounds like you wanted to kind of go on the career path like your father and kind of travel yeah. and just have a lot of freedom, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. My my mom always had a nickname for me. <laughs> it sounds derogatory, but I, I'd like to think she didn't mean it that way. <laughs> She called me the queen bee and she said, you know, wherever you go, there's a little hive of activity. And, you know, like I, I was someone where I was kind of a nerd in high school, but, um, but I was, you know, student government president. And I, I kind of like to get into the business of things wherever I was. I, I, I thought I wanted to be a CEO. I wasn't sure what industry, but I wanted to run a company and I like the details and semantics and logistics. And I like to plan and, you know, just produce in a way. And I actually didn't know that I wanted to go into film or even writing when I was young. I thought I would probably end up in politics or journalism. But um, it was after I had 
I taught school. I got an English teaching degree. I taught school for a year. Then I had my first child and I was with her and she slept a lot. And I found myself going crazy. I was quite bored actually, because she would sleep so much. And I wasn't working for the first time in my life. I was one of those people who had like two or three jobs going at any given time on top of school. And so I was kind of bored. And so while she would take naps, I would, um, I, I started writing and I had written one story in college and um, I had a professor who was very nurturing. He said, you know, you should look at being a writer. So I kind of returned to that. And then as I started writing, I, the book idea real world one one came and um, my brother actually moved in with us after college. And I was kind of baffled that he didn't know how to get a bank account or a job or all of these things, life skills. And so I thought, you know, back then that's when kids used to read books before they all had phones. <laughs> and I thought there, there needs to be a book that adult kids how to do it. So um, that book idea was um, born and I, I followed the rules and got writer's um, market, and which back then was a book, now it's a website, but it tells you how to put a book proposal together. So I followed the rules of that, submitted a proposal to about 20 publishers, and I got really lucky because Adams Media um, Publishing, their big nonfiction um, imprint, they came back and published my book, and that was really exciting. And so I was a published author at 22, and that led into the career of writing where I learned very quickly that it's not a CEO per se type um, career persona, but as a writer, you are controlling your own little mini world. <laughs> and I realized I obviously have control issues, right? My husband would have concurred with that. But um, I love this idea that I was like the CEO of my own little brain. And I could like distribute my stories the way I chose to and organize them in, you know, whatever fashion I wanted to, whether I used an outline or note cards or whatever. And, and I could kind of control this little writing world. And it became my little internal conglomerate, I guess, where I was able to start writing. And so I wrote the book, which led to um, a job actually working for the OC Register, as you mentioned. And I wrote a column called Cracking Up, and it was following the chaos and conundrums of a family with four kids. And so I enjoyed that for many years, 10 years, I think I wrote that column, um, just writing about my family and as we grew up together. And that was really fun. But then I always had that plan that once my youngest was in kindergarten, I wanted to go back to school and start um, phase two of my, my career life. And I wanted to get a master's degree, which I did. Um, when she went to kindergarten, I applied to USC and I was um, in their master of professional writing program where I studied screenwriting. And then um, that got me into film. And so that segued into that, um, that extremely exciting and crazy and what the heck am I doing um, world that I'm now in, um, in filmmaking. So Wow, it's just interesting how we're talking about this, like years, like decades of getting to this point you're at. Like we can really sum that up, <laughs> just this short conversation. Yeah. But as you're giving me kind of that overview, it is interesting because I thought before even interviewing that there's so many little things that we have in common. And I didn't realize you were like the oldest kind of the mom in your family. I definitely yeah. had that role. And I went into education. I got my degree in elementary education. And so a lot of these little things, and of course, your traveling bug, I love, but, and we go back to the title while I can, and you've done so much in the time that you've had and just, you're making it happen. And I think about my life, even though we do have these similarities, I've had my own set of roadblocks or things that I could use as excuses to not do what I want to do, to not to make my dreams come true. And as you're talking about some of your own obstacles along the way, 
it's, I think that's what makes it so inspiring is that you still move forward. It might not have looked the way you had it mapped out, but you still made it happen. And I think that we can all resonate with this because each one of us is probably living plan B or Z. <laughs> and <laughs> if we stop or get, you know, when things don't work out the way, the way that we want them to, if we stop there, then we're not going to be living our most fulfilled life. And I love that with all of this, you've been able to use what you would have considered perhaps a roadblock, motherhood, your health, these different things. It's actually enhanced and added to your product and everything that you're doing into, you know, fulfilling your dreams. Because, you know, as we said, we kind of begin this with the movie uh, Miss Arizona, which I don't know if I mentioned the title earlier, but that is the title of the movie which is which is out right now, the one that um, I'm going to go see tomorrow night if anybody wants to join me. But <laughs> so just tell me a little bit about kind of that. And one thing I did want to interject too really fast before I forget is just going back to, we're going to be talking about the movie and kind of the premise here, but in high school, you were involved in pageants to a small degree or something. I, can you explain that to me just a little bit? Oh, sure. Yeah. So yeah, so this film, I have films I've worked on for five to 10 years, but this one came quickly in, in my little head, the crazy head. Um, but yeah, I had had experiences in high school. In the South, pageants are kind of a bigger thing. I don't know if they're big in Arizona, but in California, you don't hear about them as much, at least where I live. But um, in the South, a lot of people participate in pageants and, and look at it as a way to get scholarship money or whatnot. And I had a friend who was in a Miss Tennessee pageant and won. And the following year, they were, she was kind of helping recruit people to enter this pageant and um, came to me and said, oh, you should enter. And, and to be honest, it, it wasn't my world. I didn't know much about pageants and I probably wasn't like a natural <laughs> in that world. Um, I had had some modeling experience, but pageants was a whole new thing. But I was a competitive pianist and I, I did have that talent. So my mom thought, oh, this is great, you know, for scholarship opportunities. So anyway, so I ended up entering um, not one, but actually three pageants, because once you buy everything that goes with doing a pageant, you may as well use it a couple of times, like all your dresses and wardrobe, you know, all the things you have to buy. And so my mom put me in a few of these. And um, anyway, so I was, I ended up winning. If, this is embarrassing. I never talk about this. <laughs> so, I, I don't think some of my closest friends here don't even know. Any well, of this, now they will. Um, the, the cat's out of the bag. <laughs> <laughs> but I ended up, so I actually, I was so in a strange turn of events because I was like totally a dork in high school, but I ended up being the homecoming queen. My senior year, I um, kind of grew out of my shell a little bit, my shy shell, and I was the homecoming queen, and I ended up winning the Miss Tennessee homecoming queen pageant. It was a pageant for homecoming queens. Just so dorky. Anyway, and then um, I was in the America's National Teenager pageant, um, and I was Miss Tennessee for that. So the same year, I was Miss Tennessee for both of these teen pageants. It's not like the Miss America, Miss USA pageant line, but I was uh, Miss Tennessee in both of those. So I met a lot of people who were career pageant girls and then a lot of people like me who were just kind of like trying to earn 1500 bucks for college. Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah, So it was an interesting experience. And um, so I did that a long, long, long time ago. And um, I do think everything we do in our life feeds to the next thing and and lends itself to informing our brain and our heart, you know, in some way. So, you know, it was a growth experience for sure, but it wasn't something that carried with me. And then um, much, much later, um, my volunteer work became quite important. And, and that was something in um, high school. My mom 
totally embodies charity. Like that is her life. She gives everything away to everybody. And growing up in Memphis, right outside Memphis, we spent our summers and our Saturdays in the shelters. Like we, um, even when times were tougher for us, we were in the shelters volunteering. I would watch kids so their parents could attend classes. Um, we usually worked at a women's shelter and my mom was very involved. One of her best friends ran it. And we um, spent a lot of time doing nonprofit work. So <clears throat> later in my life, that was something um, when my, my own family was going through like a little bit of financial struggle. My husband decided to quit his job and we bootstrapped and he was going to start a new software company. And so for about four years, we were living off savings and um, <laughs> got to the point where we're on credit cards for a minute. But, you know, you're going through those financial struggles. And it was a time where my kids, there wasn't extra money for, you know, extracurricular activities. And I remember one day my son was saying that, why don't we have a new car like everyone else? You know, we had a great car that ran, but it was 10 years old and he thought we should have a new car. So that day I just remembered what my childhood was like and whether we had or had not, we were always giving. And so I took my kids down to our local um, place here called Welcome In that feeds the homeless every day. And we started volunteering there. And after um, some time, we really kind of fell in love with this um, give back society that we had met. And of course the people we were serving were serving us way more than we were serving them. I felt, but, um, so my sister and I started a nonprofit called Aspire Hire. And our goal was to kind of do what our mom, that was our mom's motto. And our goal was to do what our mom taught us as kids, which is, um, to always try to be a little bit better. And so we, um, what we do is we match families looking for um, nonprofit or volunteer experiences. We match them to local causes that fit their needs and their interests. So if a family comes to me and says, hey, we love animals, how can we get involved? And we try to pair them up with a local animal shelter or whatnot. So we started this group and quickly I had 100 families in, in my chapter, the Orange County chapter of Aspire Hire. So we take people once or twice a month to feed the homeless through this welcome in organization. We also do uh, um, other activities. But through this nonprofit work, I became very exposed and involved with a local shelter called Family Assistance Ministries, which um, parents over one of their arms is the Gilchrist House, which is a shelter for women. And I started volunteering with the Gilchrist House. And because they found out I'd written this book on life skills, they thought, oh, why don't you go into this local shelter and teach the life skills class? And, um, I said, okay, you know, and I didn't really know what to expect, um, put together my little presentation and was supposed to talk to me about resumes and job interview skills. And I went in and I was just blindsided. I was so underprepared for what I faced in that room. Um, the shelters, these exist in every town across America, probably throughout the world, but it, it was a safe house shelter. So it was in a tiny room. Um, it's like a little home that the women lived in. And I went into their little living room and there were only about, you know, five or six women there. And it's a place where they, they're in, essentially in hiding from um, their tormentors, their abusers. And sometimes um, these shelters allow children. Sometimes they don't. The one I was in did allow children. And um, these were the same shelters I'd volunteered in as a kid. I would watch these kids at these moms who would go to these classes, these life skills classes. So here all these years later, I find myself teaching one. And I went in with my little, you know, outlined preparation and quickly learned that that's not what these women needed. Um, when we were talking about resumes, one of the women asked me, okay, well, what do you do if you have a felony? And I, I, my jaw dropped. I, I just, I didn't know. I didn't know. And I told her, I said, I don't know, but I'll find out. And so I kind of bonded with these women over these months and these years that I would work there. The women generally only stayed in the shelter about six months, but I met rounds of women who would come through the shelter and, and together my presentation got better thanks to them because they taught me what I needed 
to do to be able to teach them something. And it's so which, interesting as you're explaining this, I'm just visualizing the movie because I've already seen yeah. Miss Arizona once. And so I'm just envisioning that little living room where the lady, she comes in with her tiara yep. on. <laughs> and yep. it's just, and, and it's, she's so out of it. And I have to say, I did not wear a tiara. To oh, come on. Come on. <laughs> I know. I did not throw in my pageant garb. In fact, they definitely did not know I did pageants. But yes, in our movie, Miss Arizona. So that movie idea came from this experience I had had working in this women's shelter. So um, yeah, so just the genesis of the movie happened. It was fall of 2016. I'd actually been working on another passion project film for many years about, imagine this, about being a mother, juggling her artistic sensibilities um, with being a mom. And that film, um, I had a lot of interest from some big producers, but we were struggling to get the lead. They all wanted an A-list actor to lead. And all of a sudden, this other film kind of entered um, the zeitgeist of life because it's fall 2016. It's election season you know, the country was quite volatile at the time. Um, there was a lot of back and forth between, you know, their gender issues. This was right before the Me Too-ish um, movement came out. And um, I was just really, like, not happy with the way women were being portrayed in the media. Um, I felt like we were kind of going back a few decades to, like, some of the lounges that you'd hear these stories and people were being pardoned before, <laughs> you know. just It was just kind of, ugh, it just made me feel yuck. And, um, and at the time, I was just, um, my heart was heavy with what women were going through in this nation. And um, I, this, this script came to my head, and it was Miss Arizona, and it was the idea that there's this woman. Also, at the time, I had a few different friends going through divorces to kind of the cliche divorce scenario in some societies where it's like the man had a lot of money had another life, another wife or another girlfriend, or, you know, had a double life that he was living. And then the wife finds out she's raised all the kids and it's kind of like, what now? And then the man tanks her financially, you know, kind of these like cliche stereotype divorce scenarios were happening to a few of my friends at the time. And I was a little angry by that on top of some of the political fervor. And so I don't want to say this film was written out of anger, but it was written out of a kind of a sadness for some of the, um, problems women face and the women in the shelter always have stayed with me and and they were such characters i mean they're real people and there's so many women who face so multifaceted yeah and we had talked about that and i had watched another interview that you had done about that and that the way they handled a lot of these difficult things was, was through humor and that's what i really saw in the movie was just the just bringing humor into hard situations, it's just, I mean, it's going to be hard no matter what. We might as well make it the best hard that we can, and yeah. humor can do that. And I really got the, the sense of that in that movie. And I also liked the idea of just bringing together this these diverse women from different backgrounds, but they all, you know, connected under just this need for connection and for vulnerability. Exactly. And I think exactly. that is something that all women long for, and I've seen that in my retreats and in my workshops and everything that I do, that that need for connection and vulnerability is what is is one of the, just our greatest needs. Like, and so I love that the movie really touched on that. It's it's so true. You're absolutely right. And that's where the other facet of the film comes in is I wanted to write this story about this, this woman, Miss Arizona, who was kind of like your cliche trophy wife who married to a man who didn't pay any attention to her. Her kid doesn't really need her anymore. And she's feeling like lack of purpose in her life. And she goes into a shelter to teach a class. 
And then she ends up going on this kind of wild all night adventure with these women she meets. And along their way, they meet a lot of people very different from them as well. And that was also something that kind of came from a weird experience I had one night, you know, when you have those just random weird nights that you're like, did that just happen? But I ended up at a a drag show in West Hollywood one night. Oh, I love this part. Yeah. (laughs) I'd never been to one before. And I had a friend, it was her birthday. She wanted to go. So I was like, sure. So it was like some sort of like Disney review night where the drag queens were going to be singing Disney songs. So we did not know what was in store, but it was pretty entertaining. And we showed up, but it happened to actually be election night. And when I realized as the night wore on and there were TVs in the bar part of the club and they were showing the you know, election results. And, and as the night wore on and we all kind of figured out what was about to happen, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm in West Hollywood and it's election night. And we are all about to find out the result of this election that is probably not going to be what many of the people in this club um, want it to be. And, and I, I was starting to feel really nervous and very like, oh, like this is going to be crazy. And as it became pretty apparent who the next president was, um, these drag queens who, you know, very different lives than me, you know, I, me, the mom of four and all of that. But they started going around the room and hugging and kissing everybody and saying, it's okay. It's okay. We're going to be okay. It's all about love. It's all about kindness. Just be kind, be good, be good. You know, and, and I was still kind of thrown off kilter by that. It wasn't what I expected. It was just not the reaction I expected. Drag queens are known for being very dramatic <laughs> and they were very like, loving and kind of meek in a way. And it was just really interesting to me. And so I, that's how that part of the film came in because there's a scene where kind of an extended sequence actually where Miss Arizona and her friends end up in a drag show and they learn something and also teach something to these drag queens and they all kind of come together and help each other out. But I wanted to show have a film that showed a lot of marginalized sectors of society. A lot of people who are put in corners or put in boxes or, you know, ostracized or forgotten by the masses and have these people come together and empower themselves to find what they need most. And through friendship, it's really friendship is what we need most. And so um, that's where Miss Arizona came from, the film. But um, anyway, so that explains it. But, and I agree with you, Jen, what you said, laughter through misery. I mean, it's the best medicine. And those women definitely taught me how to laugh through um, their hard times. And I, I wasn't always comfortable doing so, but they were. And, you know, so you learn a lot through that, that we all have those human connection pieces that are the same. We all want to be happy. We all want to laugh. We all want to feel. We all want to connect and be friends. And sometimes it doesn't show And just show to the feel loved and accepted. Yes. And exactly. I just think about, too, another thing that I really resonate with you on is just your love of traveling. You just got back from living in Europe for a year with your family. That's on my vision board, FYI. <laughs> It's going to happen. (laughs) And then you did your RV around the country for several months. And I just think about what I really enjoy about traveling and what I long for is to, to, to get to know other people in different cultures and their experiences and their views of the world and the, the way that they live life. And, you know, whether it's a drag queen in the United States or you're traveling somewhere, you know, abroad, I feel like we have so, so much to learn from each other. So I just get emotional because it's some of, I've learned so much in those experiences, traveling to different countries and, you know, gaining a level of gratitude and appreciation for what I have here living in America, but also seeing the humility and the kindness that so many of those people have that don't necessarily have the blessings that I have. And beyond that, just that general kindness that is shown to me as I travel in all these different places where 
I'm we are on the surface so different, but deep down we you know we talked about connection and friendship and all of those things. Those needs are universal. The need to be loved is universal. And I think the movie, so much of the work that I do, so much of your humanitarian work, and I'm very involved with humanitarian work as well, is that desire to connect all those pieces and represent those who are marginalized. Because It is so true what you're saying. So true. And I love that you're doing it in this way in the name of a movie, but you're also doing it in your life. It's not just part of your career path. It's like, it's who you are. And I, going back to, you know, the title of the podcast, While I Can, it's just understanding that all these experiences that we're having are preparing us for the next and not to wait for things to be in that ideal place. Well, when this happens or when my kids are gone or when my health is better, or when we have better finances or all those different things that we kind of sometimes will put our dreams on the shelf because we're waiting for that ideal time, knowing that in those hard times right now, and even in the good times, you're preparing us for our dreams. And yeah. what we're able to accomplish is is deepened and strengthened by the obstacles. And so kind of share your thoughts on that, because that's kind of been my driving force, finding purpose in my pain. I feel like this movie is such a compilation of all those different pieces for you. And and, oh, everything you say resonates so strongly with me. So for me, my greatest, what people externally would say is my trial. Like if they're like, well, everyone's got something. What does she have? No, there's things internally that I have that nobody knows, but there's, the external trial that everyone in my day-to-day life knows is about my disease. And people might see that as, oh, that's your trial. That's your hard thing. But I, I have to say, my trial is my greatest blessing. <laughs> and I know that sounds crazy, but it's so true. I So a little more about my disease path is I, I was ruled as having um, idiopathic neuropathy when I was 22 years old, which meant um, I had a neuromuscular condition that caused muscular atrophy in my hands and my feet which means muscle weakness, um, loss of motor skills, sensory skills. Um, and it's progressive. But when I was 22, they said, it's idiopathic. We don't know the source of this. Um, but, you know, it will stay with you throughout your life. Well, then over the next 10 years, um, as it got worse, um, I had a couple times where I ended up meeting with different doctors. Or one time I was in the ER because I thought I had a stroke because the whole left side of my body stopped working. And um, there were two doctors in that course of 10 years. And when you're in the unknown disease category, they, they test you for everything. <laughs> I've had a test for everything. A lab rat, and seriously. Oh my gosh. It's been I, a long process. Exactly. Yeah, I was a lab rat. And two different doctors, including the ER doctor, both told me I had the early signs of ALS, which as we all know, is, you know, the Garrick's disease, it's fatal generally within three to five years. And the, the time I was 31, I believe when um, the ER doctor told me that, and he was a sharp guy and I believed him, you know, and he said, I was actually out of state. I wasn't in my home state. It was in Utah at the time. And he said, you need to get back with a um, neurologist in your home state who can treat you. And it took me about six weeks before I could actually get in with like the specialist in my area for ALS. And um, so the, for six weeks, I thought I was dying. Like I thought three to five years. Was you know, MS another thing that was on the table? I feel like I've, if we, is that, was that another possibility, multiple sclerosis or was it just? Yeah. Yes, I was tested for MS as well. Yeah, they tested me. Yeah, and MS is kind of the same family. Okay. Yeah, and that's, the neuromuscular okay. unit. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So, so muscular dystrophy, MS, like all of those muscle neuromuscular diseases, um, I was being tested for, but ALS was the one that was the um, the one that they'd kind of narrowed in on. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I, um, it took me six weeks and at the time I had, my youngest was two, she was almost two years old. And so, you know, I'm envisioning this life of, you know, this little child losing her mother at four or five, six years old, um, kind of going through this like dark, deep depression. Of course it was January, which it can be my favorite month, but can be like the depressing month, you know? (laughs) And, um, and I just, there was a lot of like crying in my bedroom at night, a lot of like dark moments on the couch, staring out windows at my kids playing outside and wondering what was in store and just a lot of sadness. But in those six weeks, I had to go through that process where, okay, if I die, what does life look like for my family? You know, have I done what I wanted to do? Did what's my bucket list? What, what would I do if I could do something? So then I finally got into the doctor who turns out not only is like one of the leading specialists of ALS, but also of what she diagnosed me with and more accurately, she said, you are textbook. It's called Charcot-Marie-Tooth disease. It's um, abbreviation is CMT, like country music television. And she said, your textbook. And, and I I didn't even care what she said after that because the first thing I knew, I knew I had read about that disease and I knew it wasn't fatal. So I'm not dying. So, okay, check. You know, we're good. No matter what, we're good. But during that, the process of that um, diagnosis, she said, you, you have lost most of your um, nerve endings and your toes and your hands. And, you know, they do all these tests. And she said, you probably have 10 years left. And I was like, 10 years left of what? And she said, 10 years left of walking before you'll need a walking device, which would be like a wheelchair or a walker. Or a and again, or that something. was when you were 31. So I guess this will be divulging your age. So, but about yeah. how long ago was yeah, that? Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. So I'm 40 now. So that this, I mean, it may have been 32 by that time. I have to go back and see actually, because it's kind of a blur. I have a bad memory. So but ultimately you're like, kind of at that 10 year marker right now where she said yeah, you would be needing yeah. to be in a wheelchair. And at this point, that's, exactly. I know that you, you have limitations, but that's not the case. I was like, yeah, thanks for reminding me, Jen. I, I guess you're right. It is about 10 years. And I guess I've the last years have moved at such a rapid pace. Well, you've been running on the world. Who would have thought you had these, I, well, <laughs> these health yeah, issues? But, but that really was my list. My my first thing on my list was my whole life I wanted to go to Italy. I hadn't really been outside the U.S. besides Mexico, and I'd always wanted to go to Italy. So the very first thing we did um, was a tackle. I call it tackling the cobblestones. You know, Europe is the most amazing place on the planet, in my opinion. But it's just I like, see we have so there's... much in common. I'm with you. Yes. Oh wow! So you. So was that, so your first trip to Europe was to Italy, but that wasn't the time that you spent the year with your family, though, or was that? No, no, I no that that was my most life changing year in my life because going to Italy, I, we, I went with just my husband for two and a half weeks, and it totally shook my ethnocentric core. I'd grown up believing things like that America's the best country in the world and that Americans have it all figured out and we know how to do everything and my religion's the best religion and I you know I'd grown up with all these like this like weird, like, you know, capitalist, you're the best because you live here and you're so lucky and da, da, da. And then I went to Italy, which I'm sorry, they kick our trash and food. Come on, like be serious. Yeah, you know? you're right. And then, yeah. And, and then there's, 
there was some of the most lovely people I've ever met were there. And then meeting new faith communities. We went to mass several times. I, I had been to Catholic mass before, but not really like the ways the Italian grandmas do it. <laughs> and we were going with people that were so devout. And it just shook my core where I learned how little I actually knew and had experienced. And it woke me up to the world, the greater world. And so all my dreams of traveling the world just became bigger and more exponential. Because yes, I thought yes. there's so much to learn. There well, you don't so know what you don't know until you experience it. Exactly. And, and one thing to interject too is you're, you're LDS. And so um, that's kind of your religious background. And that's, you know, what, that's what you define yourself as. But as you're going out into the world, you're learning that there's, you know, you see the goodness and the beauty and spirituality in all these different areas. And I think, I know, because faith is a very important part and core of who you are and which has helped you get through so much of this, but kind of tie into kind of that bridging the gap on that experience as you're going out, they're going to mass and how that kind of played into how you feel about, you know, the religion that you grew up with. Yeah, absolutely. So growing up in the Bible, but I had gone to several different, like of my friends, Christian churches. And, you know, I, I had a lot of Jewish friends. I'd gone to, um, you know, bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs, you know, lots of different, but my family is very diverse in general. And so we, we kind of are more open-minded as far as religion goes, but, um, my my favorite churches, I have to say, now especially after traveling the country and going to several love Southern Black churches, they are my favorite. Of gospel music's my favorite. I do. I've been to those. They're fabulous. The energy oh. and just in oh my goodness, love it's it. wonderful. I love it. Yes, and so, but yeah, but going to um, a general region where Catholicism and um, you know there are a lot of Greek Orthodox too in Europe, or but just going to those religions and learning more just made me. I, I want to get my PhD someday. And, and I keep thinking, oh, I think I want to study theology. I'm so obsessed with learning about more about world religions. I, I just, I find it fascinating why people believe the way they do and what drives them to make their decisions. But I ultimately believe in a, a general kindness that we all, whether it's, you know, Jesus or Muhammad or, you know, or like it's, we, we all just, have these great examples out there that, and there's so much to learn from travel. And so, yeah, that just sent me off on a, a bigger travel um, addiction that, that, so travel was top of my list. And then I wanted to get my master's degree. So that was the next step. I, I planned to, as I said, do that when my daughter was going to be in kindergarten so I could do it with a family schedule that worked for us. And then, um, and then that led into filmmaking and, you know, unfortunately, Hollywood's super tough. It's tough. No, there's no one in Hollywood who will tell you it's not. It's just a hard industry. But I didn't envision entering that world 50 with a cane um, being easier than doing it 38 with four kids. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I thought, you know, I'm going to try to like make films now while I can. And as long as it works with my family life, um, that was going to be my route. So I did write a script called Waffle Street and was able to produce that with some wonderful people and have, had a great team. And we shot that in Utah in 2014, I believe. And who was the star? I know it was Danny Glover. And who was the other lead actor in that yeah, one? James Lafferty um, from One Tree Hill and Julie Gonzalo was in that as well. Okay. No, that was and, a good one too. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that was really fun to make. That was a really great experience. I learned so much. I had a wonderful mentor, John Kelly on that. And just learned a lot. And, um, that was a great experience. And then Miss Arizona ended up being the first feature film that I directed. And I felt, you know, that ticking clock that get in while That's you kind can of the theme through all of this is this, the clock is ticking, the clock is ticking. Yes. And you've managed in this amount of time to really 
do the things that you had set out to do, which is so inspiring. And one thing I wanted to note here is that you played the piano. You're, you're an accomplished pianist. And that is something that you're not able to do now with the neuropathy. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, um, that was actually the first sign that I, something was wrong with me is while I was back in pageant land, <laughs> I, uh, was competing. And so it manifested late teens. CMT can manifest at any time, but there's triggers. And I actually had taken an antibiotic while I was in high school, um, that my doctor in my thirties traced back. And it's one of the neurotoxins that triggers it. It's a genetic disease. So it's in your DNA, whether you have it, but, and it's actually quite common, but it doesn't manifest in a lot of people who have it. And there's all various forms of degrees of it. Like if you Google it, you'll see all different types of you know, some people are in wheelchairs. Some people have to Isn't get Isn't it fun when you get to become an expert on something that you never uh, cared to know yeah. about? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. now it's become it, a big part of your life. I know. It's crazy. And so, yeah. And so while I was competing and actually with the pageants, I had a David Lenz piece I was playing called Dancing in the Berlin Wall. And it was very, lots, very staccato. Lots of, you know. And through my rehearsal schedule, I just couldn't play the staccato. I couldn't make my hand bounce off the keys like it was the way it was supposed to. So, um, so I taught piano lessons in my twenties when I was a young mother, but, um, I did that as well. Another little, I'm just laughing at all these little overlaps. (laughs) So much in common. It's crazy. Um, yeah. So, but now like, I mean, people sometimes will say, Oh, can you play, you know, whether you're at church or, you know, wherever you are. Um, and, I'm not super comfortable. I, it's like my thumbs are pretty dead now. They don't really have much um, muscle left. And so I can't really, like, I can't spread an octave. You know, I, I can't hit the keys the way I used to. So I'm not super comfortable. I enjoy playing. I love it. I'll do it privately, but I'm just not comfortable it's anymore. Just, yeah. just and, so, and I just think about that too, growing up playing the piano. And it's something that I don't do as often as I should. I remember one of my kids, he was you know, two or three years old and I was in there playing. He's like, wow, mom, you're so good. I didn't know you played the piano so well. And I just, <laughs> because we get busy, but I think, you know, we go back yeah. to the, the while I can, it just, it just, I mean, and I hope those of you who are listening, just kind of just stop and pause and think about all that you're able to do right now. And, yes. and, and to not limit yourself by what's not working or what's, you know, seems to be the obstacle. Because I think about all of this for you that could have just stopped you in your tracks. And yet here you are still moving and grooving. I know you have other projects that you're working on. And I know you're, we talked on the way here about your book, which is now the title of the podcast. It's going to be the title of your book is, is where we got the idea for that was While I Can. And I think this so much of what we talked today, it just talked about today, just kind of correlates to this theme of doing what we can, being mindful in our dreams, and just the underlying need that we all have for love and connection is kind of the essence of all of this. And I think when I'm living the best version of myself, I have so much more to give others. I'm the better version of myself, and that resonates and that I can share that. And I think about kind of where you're at right now, just to kind of to kind of bring this to a close, is, is tying that all together in living our dreams. And it, could, it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to, you know, it's your dream may not be producing a film. That's not my dream. But we I all have dreams. It, I'll say that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, you've made it happen. And I mean, I don't personally know anybody else that's done that. And that is something that you've, you know, put, put a lot of time and effort into. There's been you know, a lot that's gone into that. I know the back end of that because, you know, I talked to Karen, she gives me a lot of that. But I just think 
whatever that looks like for you, whatever that dream is. And it could be big or small, but be mindful of that, intentional, and take the steps you need to take to make it happen. Because in fulfilling your dreams, which sometimes feels like a self-centered place to be as a mom, you're actually giving yourself permission yourself permission, and you're also giving your kids permission to do the same. And really, what more yeah. do you want for your children is for them to live their most fullest expressed life. Like, that's what I want for my kids. And so it's you're so doing true. that. And, yeah. And you bring up something so important that we can't ignore. I, I always tell people that's when they're like, how, you know, you get the, how do you do it all and all that. And the truth is, I have to disclaimer, my four kids are amazing. I mean, they're just amazing. And, but they're also I, I don't have children like the, the life I operate and the life some crazy women like me operate, like my children, they don't have special needs. I'm not saying someone couldn't do this with that, but I, I've been given children who are very easy and complimentary to this lifestyle. They love to travel. They're actually all quite artistic and love are interested in what I do. And so it, I haven't had some of the roadblocks that, um, some might have, which I feel was intentional. It was God's plan, you know, to have these kids in my world, but, but it's like the, take them with you. Like, that's how we do it. They go with me to set, like we do it together and I would not want to do this or would not do it if it wasn't something that worked for our family. I want to disclaimer that because it, like I have friends who have children who have real struggles and life's really hard for them. And sometimes it makes me sad if they look at me and they're like, well, I don't know how you do that or, you know, how I could never do that. And I'm like, you know, it's each their own. This is my version of crazy. This is what we do in our family, but it's not for everyone. And, you know, it's, you have to take into account that. And my mother, the mother of eight, she, she told me when I was a young mom, she said, the best thing you can do is raise your children to be independent. And that is my parenting philosophy. It's my husband's like, that's how we do life. Like our kids, I mean, we take care of them, obviously, but they also know how to take care of themselves. They are independent people. And and, and independent in their thoughts and independent in their pursuits in life. That it, They're not just an extension of you, of us. And so I think yeah. that, and you living this life the way that you've lived it is, is, is a, you know, an example of doing just that. And that's, again, like there's so many different angles of this interview that I've been excited to discuss with you. But ultimately, I think just encouraging all of you that are listening to take notice and think about what you want in your life, what that looks like for you, and get excited and passionate about something and and give yourself permission to, to pursue that. Because again, that's we're, we're all here to to progress. And, it, and it's wherever you're at right now is great too. And but there's always that 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 level of progression that we could be looking towards. And regardless of the roadblocks, because again, we all have them. They look different for all of us, but no one is gets a free pass from crap sandwiches, as my husband calls them. <laughs> we all got crap sandwiches. And so even with the crap sandwiches, you can still have dessert. So find your dessert, whatever that is in your life, <laughs> look for it. Because I love that. You know, yeah, well, why just have crap sandwiches? And if you need a Mountain Dew to go with it too, sometimes that's my drink of choice. Make it happen. <laughs> So anything you'd like to add as we, you know, we move to close this interview, Autumn? I've loved sitting here with you. We could be here all day, but how do you want to close yeah. this? Well, yeah, I was going to say, let's just keep going. No, um, <laughs> uh, I, I agree with everything you've said, and, and I love what you're doing here. And I think the glow, everything you embody, let it glow. 
Like, what is it that makes you, you let it glow? And you're so correct in that we cannot raise the best people if we're not being the best ourselves. And one thing I know for a fact is my mom had eight kids who we are as different as night and day. Like all get out. Like I have a professional poker player brother. I have a yogi sister. I have a lawyer brother. I mean, we're all so different. But my mom raised us to be who we are and she fanned the flames of our essence. And as a mother, I feel that's so important. And what better way to do that for our children than to do it for ourselves and show them that we believe in dreams. We believe that you can't be shut down or put in a box or told no. Like we believe in that and we have to embody that in ourselves as an example to our children. And obviously it has to be done with reason and, you know, prayer and thought and planning and, and all the things to make it work for your family. But it is so true. And and I, I do hope that others can find their way to glow. I have a lot of friends right now who are hitting that where their kids are leaving the house and they're kind of like, now what, now what do I do? And I, I find a lot of people come to me because they're like, you've never had a problem ignoring your kids. What do you, you know? so, like you're, you're doing all these other things. And, and it's like, well, I've done it with my kids, I feel, but, but it's like, find the thing that sparks your passion, whether it's painting or music or, you know, reading or, you know, nonprofit work, or there's so much out there, but and again, what you said, I, I consider myself an activist artist. Like I do not do projects if I don't feel like they're good for somebody. And for me, that's what gets me going. And, and I've struggled with postpartum depression. I've had, I think most artists have forms of depression in one way or another, but when well, we're I think not it's, creative. It's, and I, I mean, I, in my brain, I've learned that so much and that it's that, that constant creativity and, and thinking of ideas and ruminating over things that can help us create things, but it's also something that you have to keep in check because it can kind of have a life of its own sometimes. <laughs> yes, that is so true. It's so true. And yeah. And so they say an artist at rest is a death sentence. I've learned <laughs> that, but I've, but I've also learned that like we can get out of control and live in la land. And so we have to keep things in check and like take care of our responsibilities, but at the same time, nurture our passions and that will make us be the best people we can be. I love that. And again, we laugh about, you know, the artist personalities. I think we all have these little glitches in our personalities that could, you know, trip us up. And so I just love what you said. And just to kind of end here, just to take the opportunity today, while you can today, implement something different in your life. Don't be afraid to be uncomfortable and and live the life that you dream. So the, the tagline for Let It Glow is leave your baggage behind and design a radiant life. And and all that I do, that is what my, my passion is for myself, for my children, and for all of you. And I mean that sincerely because I've been in a place where I didn't think that really the, the dream part was possible because I was so focused on just surviving. But just know that wherever you are at right now in your life, that it is possible to design a radiant life. And thank you for tuning in today. And thank you, Autumn, for being here. It's been an absolute delight. So thank you so much. It was so fun to chat with you. Okay. And so until next time, shine on. Thanks for listening to the Let It Glow podcast. If you enjoyed this show, share the love with a friend. This podcast can be found on iTunes or subscribe on my website at www.let-it-glow.com. And remember, let go and let it glow.